0: Now in in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks. Would you guys pray with me? Uh, Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for uh, this church and this community. God, thank you for the fact that you uh, have come in the flesh as the Son. God, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for uh, redeeming us, for chasing after us, for showing us um, a better way to be. God, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we um, approach you for worship. I pray that you would be moving in and through us, in and through your word. Uh, God, thank you for uh, this time, this community, this covenant. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm not going to lie to you guys. This is one of like the stickier passages that we get to in Scripture. It's one of those things that really shows the warts on the early church. And it can be difficult to come to because we can see so much of it in ourselves. There are people that we interact with every week here at church that we don't quite know what to do with all the time. We can be from different cultural backgrounds. We can be from different ages, demographics, political, theological backgrounds. There can be a lot that can get in the way of gospel unity. There can be a lot that makes the life of the church difficult when it doesn't line up with the preaching of the church. Sometimes our preaching doesn't match up to our practice and sometimes our orthopraxy does not match up to our orthodoxy. But here in the sixth chapter of Acts, in the first seven verses, Luke gives us an example of what it looks like to strive with one another, not just for the accurate preaching of God's word, but for the complete living out of the practice of the Christian life. And this text really only has one big idea. So congratulations, you've clocked into the first ever Baptist sermon that doesn't have three points. And the main idea of this passage is that faithful gospel ministry recognizes needs within the covenant family, pursues its communal good, and trusts God for the increase. So as we come to this first verse... In chapter six of Acts, it says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So basically these Hellenist Jews, which were Greek-speaking Jews that had sort of been indoctrinated into the cultural sort of rhythms of the expansion of the Greek empire, that's called the Hellenization process that happened in the first couple centuries. And they're coming up and saying like, hey, uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but like no one's feeding grandma and like that's a problem and I have an issue with that and you need to... Like, make sure that she gets taken care of. And uh, the apostle said, that, 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 That's fair. We care. We should do something about that. So they call together. It says, And the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So all of a sudden, we have this conflict that arises. So we find out that there is a problem within the early church, but we understand that faithful gospel ministry recognizes needs within the covenant family. And we find here, again, that the orthodoxy of the church was not living up to the orthopraxy. We did not have the practice that went along with the preaching. And the response of the apostles demonstrates the heart of the church that there should not be a circumstance where an operational lapse causes a gap in gospel ministry. So this complaint by the Hellenists was taken in not because these widows were well-to-do, not because they came in to inherit a lot of money, not because they had a ton of political power, but because of what Galatians 3.28 says. It says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There was this gap between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews because they probably spoke a different language. They probably had a different cultural understanding of what their biological inheritance was. And one probably saw them as sort of like these like discount, knockoff, dollar store, great value brand kind of Jews because they didn't really have this cultural background behind what they did as people that spoke either Hebrew or Aramaic, that lived in Jerusalem. These people could have been coming in from the diaspora that heard about the gospel at Passover, that heard about the gospel at Pentecost, and now are coming in to participate in the life of the church, and they're finding that the practice doesn't match the preaching. But we should not be inhibited by the boundaries of race and culture, class, disability, or gender in our equal care for all people, and this is the heartbeat Of this passage, because to fail to interact with people as Jesus would, because of whatever reason that is external to their nature as image bearers of God, is to give a deficient gospel witness to both them and the community. And this is not the time for internal division to be happening in the church. We read last couple weeks about how the Sadducees were dragging in the apostles. They were beating them. They were sending them out. They were giving them a really hard time because of the gospel. And it is so incredibly difficult to maintain an external gospel unity when there is internal division because of secondary issues, because of political problems, because of racial problems. So the goal of the gospel is not just to preach to us a new theological solution for our perceived philosophical deficiencies, but it is to unify us by the grace of God into a new people, into a unified people, into one that can proclaim the excellencies of the name by which we have been called. So as we continue in our examination of this passage, we would do well to remember that the inciting incident of this passage, these needy widows that were being neglected, indeed, the establishment of this office of proto-deacon here in chapter six, is fundamentally based around seeing and caring for the needs of the marginalized and the voiceless in our own Christian community. A fundamental understanding of the gospel means that we should be seeking out needs in our covenant family. And our understanding of this at Maranatha is not that deacons exist to be served by the community, but that deacons exist to serve the community. We are incentivized to work with one another for the outcome of right worship and right practice. So we understand that deacons here are members of the church that exercise real authority over ministries in the church, which are an essential component to fulfilling our gospel calling in our context. In the same way that the seven here in Acts were appointed to accomplish an important operational task in Jerusalem, the deacons here at Maranatha, and like I say the deacons here at Maranatha as if there's this plethora of people, but it's me and Hannah McCarthy. So me and Hannah, our jobs are to make sure that the things that are important to the operation of the church are carried out so that the preaching of the gospel is not inhibited by things that are important but are not a first-issue priority, such as the preaching of the gospel. So in Hannah's case, this means that she takes care of the finances and the booking and makes sure that we are a legitimate organization in the eyes of the U.S. government that is not committing tax fraud, which is really important, and we need to do that. Uh, I make sure that all the kids from 1 to 18 um, are A, supervised on Sunday morning, um, everyone who served in kids this morning. Thank you so much. It was a disaster, but I appreciate you. You are incredible. I love you guys. I couldn't do it without you. I would, I would be so sad. Um, but I also make sure that we have an opportunity to facilitate family discipleship here at Maranatha. So I am not necessarily in the role of an elder where I am sort of setting the course for what is going to be taught, but I want to help facilitate the families in our church to be able to do that to the best of their abilities because the primary discipleship um, influence in a kid's life. So this passage in Acts serves as one part of our scriptural support for what this office is and what it looks like and what it does, that it supports the administrative duties and ministry tasks that happen in the church, and then this sort of comes along with the qualifications that we find in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll get there a little bit later. We're not going to read that passage, but we'll talk about what it means that a person is qualified to be a deacon and how that works. Because, again, faithful gospel ministry seeks out needs in our community. Um, He goes on in verse two, it says, and the 12, that's the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples, that's everybody else that believes in Jesus at this point, and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And this gets to the second part of our big idea for the passage this morning, is that faithful gospel ministry pursues communal good. And that can look different based on what your calling is. Not everyone is called to do everything. There is a reason that I am not up here on the worship team. Your guys' ears would be bleeding if I tried to hit a high C. It just wouldn't happen. So the problem that we have here in Acts is really important enough that the apostles call the first ever like full church members meeting, which if you remember here at Maranatha we have a members meeting on October first. Write it down, don't forget it. I expect to see you there. If I don't, uh, you probably have stuff going on. It's reasonable. You guys are busy people. But I would be sad if you weren't there. So please, like, don't just forget. I'd be sad. Um, so they understand that this is an issue that the entire church needs to get together to solve, to prioritize, to fix, that something needs to be done because it's hampering the preaching and the witness of the gospel. And because of the prevailing attitudes between the Hellenists and the Hebraic Jews, there were probably already these underlying surface tension issues that were starting to like bubble up and get a little weird and ugly and not super fun. And the apostles realized that they needed to address this, that there had to be something that was done about it, and that they were not necessarily the best people for the job. It says it is not right that we give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. And you guys need to remember that in the beginning of Acts, these men received authority from Jesus Christ himself to preach the gospel to all people from all nations. They were given a specific task by their Messiah to go and carry out. But they also had to maintain unity in the church. They also had to make sure that people weren't being neglected, that the marginalized, the needy, that those who were voiceless were not being seen by the larger body of the church because they weren't in the majority. And it is so much harder to be sold on the work of ministry when you are not on the same page of people that you're doing ministry with. And a great way to alienate someone else is to not take care of their aging mother. A great way to alienate people is to not take care of the people that can't advocate for themselves that are important to them. And a direct application that I would have you guys make in your own life is that if you feel like there is this gap that is growing for whatever reason, take time to reconcile that with the other person in this body because our degraded witness from that is harmful not only to people inside the church as we have so much time spent prioritizing our own relationships and our feelings and if it feels difficult to serve for some kind of reason, that can be hampering to our ministry in the church, but it also degrades our witness outside the walls of this building. And given the larger context of the church in the world, it was essential that this church here in Acts was united within itself, especially with all of the controversy and the difficulty and the persecution that was happening in the first few chapters of this book. It wouldn't do to be brought in and beaten and thrown out by the Sadducees and then come back and then be emotionally beaten and accused and just raked over the coals by the community that is supposed to be supporting you after you're dealing with all this persecution that comes in from the outside. But this was not important enough to overrule the preaching of the gospel that had to go forth as the primary job of the apostles. And from the A part of this verse, we find that it was a serious issue that required the consideration of the apostles, required the attention of the entire church, but it did not rise to the level that it caused the apostles to be derelict in their duty of preaching the gospel to resolve an administrative issue. They viewed their primary responsibility as preaching the word of God and this raises the question that is difficult for us to handle as a modern church and that is, is the consideration of the widows or the needy or the marginalized in our community beneath the notice and priority of those who have the most authority, who are the most visible, who are typically the ones who are called to preach on a Sunday or be in church leadership? Is the preaching of the gospel more important than the practice of the gospel? Can we allow our practice to fall apart as long as our theology is solid. And my answer to that is a conditional no. The apostles were specifically tasked by Jesus, as we read earlier in Acts, with being witnesses in the world for the gospel. That means they were assigned their duty in their context for their life of ministry. It was the job of the to. It was the job of the apostles to ensure the establishment of correct doctrine in the church in its formative years. And when Paul speaks of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians twelve, he sets the standard for what our thinking about these gifts. Should be that we are all worse off without each other. We can't all be this one kind of thing that we seem to prioritize and give fame to that, oh, if you have this gift, you write books and have podcasts and you are this influential person in Christian spheres and Christian communities. And if you have this gift, like you are really good at hospitality and like, man, you make a fantastic pot of coffee, but like no one ever hears from you. We can't give this hierarchy of giftings to the church that is not prescribed. In Scripture, everything is important in the fulfilling of this gospel mission, yet at the same time, Paul does not shy away from encouraging that the church in Corinth seek the higher gifts at the end of uh, the chapter uh, 12 and verse 31. He says that we are to seek the higher gifts, and these are not the ones that you maybe think of when you think about spiritual gifts. This isn't like, you know, tongues and healing. This isn't all the stuff that we talked about in Pentecost that was happening, but he talks about how these higher gifts that the church are built on is apostleship and prophecy and teaching, things that plant churches, things that witness to our community, things that are incredibly important for the exhortation and the encouragement and the edification of the church. These are all hot topic issues that we need to address, we need to resolve, and we need to make sure that those priorities happen. But at the same time, the practice of the word should not go neglected. The practice of what we are preaching in our churches on Sunday morning should not be neglected just to focus on the preaching. It has to be resolved. It has to be dealt with. We have to seek the communal good for our covenant family if we are going to continue to accurately and truthfully preach the gospel. So finally, I want to emphasize in this moment that we're sharing here together that the role of the teacher is not of higher importance than the person who is serving the person being disciple to make it feasible that they are there in church on Sunday. I used to go to a church in Chicago, and it was in this lower-income area where not everyone had a car and couldn't make it to Sunday morning. So the guy who was giving rides to everyone to church on Sunday morning that was waking up at 6.30 to run around and get everyone there was just as important as the person who was preaching because if they couldn't get there, they couldn't hear the gospel. And what I want us to be able to understand is uh, coming out of First Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since it is his aim to please the one who enlisted him. So we shouldn't be distracted by this political game in church. We shouldn't be distracted by if we're being visible enough. We shouldn't be distracted by if we feel like we're getting enough respect or honor from the society that we live in or the community that we serve in, because that is just another way for division to seep into the cracks of the church. And even as the politics and racial and social and cultural divides come in between us, we have to be cognizant of our ability to move past them for the sake of the gospel because it is a hindrance to the gospel that is beautiful and gracious that calls us to love one another and to see one another as Christ does, as co-inheritors in the gospel. So what's happening here in Acts is a material symptom of a spiritual problem, and spiritual problems require spiritual solutions. If we are going to seek the communal good of our covenant family, then we have to make sure that we are not approaching it as just another task that we can do apart from the creator of that covenant family. We can't do it apart from the God that gives us the ability to go into these circumstances to preach the gospel and care for one another. So now that we've covered these priorities that the apostles have in this passage, let's look at the qualification that they give for the deacons. It says in verse three, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So there is this leadership that is being given by the apostles where they they are the ones that are to appoint it, but the congregation almost in a way chooses for themselves who their deacons are going to be, and the first responsibility in this is that they are of good repute. And this doesn't quite summarize exactly what the original language is trying to get at. Basically the word that they're using here is like one big compound word, and it basically means someone who is displaying a good testimony, someone who is really standing up for what they believe in that is true to what they say, and they're giving a good witness for the gospel. And this qualification comes first. This is the first thing that the apostles care about is not their competence, is not their ability to handle a spreadsheet, is not their ability to make sure that they remember names and faces and drive through orders. I mean, they probably had like a chariot drive through kind of thing in Jerusalem. It was a big city. I'm sure they had that. Um, but it was not all of these things that we would think of first as really important for administrative tasks or for sort of ministry support. But the first thing was that their life had been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first qualification for someone who was going to come into leadership in the church is that their life bears witness to who Jesus is, and that that testimony lines up with the task that they have been given. I don't think that they would have appointed people to this task who really hate elderly people or don't know how to talk to widows or don't know how to sympathize with someone who has lost somebody. Their testimony has to line up with their timesheet. Their task has to be equivalent to their calling and what they have seen God do in their life. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that we need to live in a way where we pursue ministries that God has given us a heart for, that we feel like God has been shaping us for in our experience with the gospel. And there's a reason that if you talk to a lot of our kids ministry volunteers, they are patient, loving, kind people that are excited to teach people the gospel. I don't want Oscar the Grouch downstairs teaching our kids about the gospel. I don't want someone who doesn't have the disposition and the calling for ministry involved in a position. And in the same way as these deacons are being raised up, the first thing that is being checked on for them is does their testimony match the task that they are being given? I should not be the coach of an NBA team. I don't know the first thing about basketball. I've never played. I couldn't play if you asked me, like if you, if you, if you told me to. I just, I just couldn't do it. I wouldn't fit in that role. So the first thing that the apostles double check on is is their testimony, is the witness that they are bearing to the world in sync with what is happening as they are being called in to service. So then as we call people into ministry, we, has to make, we have to make sure that their testimony is in sync with their task. There has already been an administrative lapse that has happened in this community, and from what we are led to believe here based on the requirements that the apostles lay out, this was not some simple oversight, but there was some deeper character issue that made sure somebody went without the daily essentials that they needed to continue. The second qualification that we get from the apostles in this passage, is that these men would be full of the spirit and wisdom. And the implication here is that as they were filled with the spirit, wisdom would be a particular manifestation of his presence in their lives. This wisdom would have been essential for caring for these difficult, complicated social dynamics of two groups of people. And one of the really difficult things for us to wrap our mind around is that we are not going to tend to be at peace with one another if God does not move in our lives first. If God does not intervene in grace with our lives first, we as humans are not predisposed to unity with people that are not culturally identical to us. We see it all the time. We see it in the constant debates that go back and forth on our political spectrum. We see it with unrest in different parts of the world because of two people groups that have been situated next to each other for a long time and are continually in conflict. But the prescription for this problem is not a material one, but a spiritual one. We expect our deacons and our leaders and people who are serving our church bodies to be filled with the spirit and wisdom. This spirit-provided wisdom is what would make it possible for these seven men to do the work that was so incredibly necessary at the time. That they would be able to wield real authority because they were really aligned with the heart of God for his church. Really wise as they discerned how the Spirit was calling them to best care for the needy among them. Really understanding of the role that this ministry played both for those who were under their care and for the world that was watching how Christians take care of their own. Verse 4 But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Faithful gospel ministry trusts God for the increase, faithful gospel ministry trusts God that as we continue to walk out this faith that we've been given, that he is going to provide the means by which we are going to do that. The plan for the apostles was always to be devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word, and the purpose of the appointment of deacons was not so that there could be some kind of like surface level show of delegation, not so it should be this idea of, oh, here's how you do sort of like organizational planning from a ministry perspective, but that it would make space in the lives of the apostles for what they were called by Jesus to do, and that is prayer and the preaching of the gospel. And one of the things I want to bring to your attention is that prayer is given priority over the preaching of the gospel. It's mentioned first here that they would devote themselves first to prayer and then to the ministry of the word a large part of our application for this passage would be moved on if I didn't encourage you guys to be in prayer for each other. A lot of us meet in community groups together, and that is a fantastic place to talk about the work that God is doing in all of your contexts. This is a fantastic place to talk about who you're discipling, who you're caring for, who are you praying for, what are you burdened by, what are you doing in your context, in your life, in your ministry that you get to see God glorified, and how can we bring the church into that with one another? Because the deacons aren't just serving because it's a good idea, but because they are caring for people that Jesus bled and died for. These Hellenistic widows were not just people that would be a good PR campaign because, oh, look at all the good we're doing in our community. Look at how well we're taking care of people. Jesus died for these widows so they should receive the same honor that anyone else does. So as we go about and we do ministry, as we care for people that can't care for themselves, or as we raise up the next generation of leaders and Christians and believers, or as we're discipling people, or as we're just praying for our friends that are having a difficult time, how are we seeing those prayers answered? What is God doing in our circumstances? Because it's not us, it's never us, it never will be us. So where are we seeing it? And are we encouraging each other with that? Are we really believing that prayer is fundamental to the ministry of the word, both as it is preached and as it is practiced? And my hope that in doing this, you wouldn't be able to brag to each other about high and mighty and holy you are, but that you would see the breadth and the depth of the work that God is doing in the whole body of the church and you could know how to be praying for each other. I hope that our community wouldn't be defined as a place where we can only share the difficulties and only pray for sickness and only pray for illness, but that we can praise God through what he's doing and pray that that ministry would be expanded. And I'm so often inspired by the prayers of the epistles for this reason because it sees to the heart of what it is. It doesn't just look at our daily problems that we have Just continually, there is always another person that needs prayer, there is always another illness, there is always another sickness, and we are called to pray for those who are sick, but we are also called to see what God is doing through the illness, even if it is not healed. Take a look with me at what Paul prays for the Ephesian church in chapter 3. He writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named." Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. In Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Do you catch the priorities that are in this prayer that are also in Acts? At the very beginning, Paul prays to the Father that the church would be strengthened by the Spirit so that Christ can dwell in the church to comprehend the love of Christ that is the gospel. Can can you imagine believing in a gospel that you need God to help you have the strength to understand? And are we filled up with joy just so we can be puffed up and so we can roll around like Violet Beauregard and Willy Wonka's child? No, that's not the point. We're not puffed up, we're not filled up, we're not given this fullness of God just, just, just to stack it up. We're not giving it just so we can feel all warm and fuzzy. And don't get me wrong, the gospel should bring you joy. You should be encouraged by what it is, the length to which God has gone to save you. But it shouldn't make you want to sit on your couch and question what your purpose is in life. It shouldn't fill you up and weigh you down like that third pint of ice cream that I have every Sunday night because, oh my gosh, I am so tired at the end and I just want ice cream. It shouldn't be that kind of thing that makes you feel full and happy and satisfied but immobile and unable to do anything. It shouldn't paralyze you, but it should drive you into action and into ministry. And this is the kind of spirit that the apostles had to be filled with to do the work of ministry because faithful ministry trusts God for its increase. It says in... Verse five, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. So everyone was on board with this idea of appointing spiritual people to handle a material problem that stemmed from a spiritual issue. They were all pleased, this pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, like of Antioch. These they sat before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So the apostles understand that prayer is foundational to their ministry and it is the foundation upon which they are appointing these deacons. It begins with prayer, it begins with the laying on of hands by the church. And these are men that are chosen wisely. These are men that are full of the spirit, that have a good reputation. Also, if you notice, there are a lot of Greek names here. You see a couple like Andrew and Philip in the Disciples, but most of them were Jewish by heritage and Jewish by culture and Jewish by upbringing, but there are a lot of people here that identify with the need, that see the need, that have an interest in it being carried out and being a focus of the church in their context. And a lot of these men, five out of the seven, we never hear from again. This is the only time that they spend in the Bible. This is the only time that they spend in the pages of Scripture. But we do see what Stephen goes on to accomplish. We do see a little bit from Philip. And they are men that are filled with the Spirit and called into other areas of ministry as well. We see... uh, Stephen's speech next week. We see the beginning of that and then it continues on another week after that. And as we continue to watch the lives of the people that we call into ministry, that we call into leadership, are we expecting them to be filled with the Spirit and to continue to develop in the ministry that they're called to? They shouldn't be stagnating. The position of deacon is not something that you arrive to. The office of deacon is not something that you're installed to and then never see God move in your life again, but it should be a means by which you continue to see more of the gospel in your context. And then we come to this sort of soaring conclusion. It says in verse seven, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And when it talks about this idea of the gospel continuing to increase and the number of disciples multiplying, this is not a one-time thing. There are all these really finicky technical things that happen in Greek grammar and there's this whole kind of Verb tense that they have, and the idea is like it's this imperfect tense. So it's the idea that it is not quite done yet and it is continuing to go. So when we talk about this happening, the idea of the disciples continuing to increase and the disciples multiplying that happens in the imperfect tense. It's not one thing that happened one time, but the ministry of the gospel continues so that growth continues, so that multiplication continues, so that God is continuing to build his church, and I find it interesting that it is at this point that Luke tells us that a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It was this continual, ongoing multiplication and ministry and care for the community that may have won over the priests, that may have won over members of the Sadducees that were just persecuting the church earlier on in chapter 5. It might have been the case that it was not the preaching of the gospel, but the practice of the gospel that won over the skeptics in Jerusalem. It might not have been the preaching of the gospel that went over the religious elite that had heard it multiple times, that understood what the basic tenets of Judaism were and that taught them to the world, but it was the practice of the gospel, the practice of a community that cares for one another so deeply that they would make time even for the most voiceless in their society. So the conclusion to the solution that was found for the condition of the church in the beginning of this dispute that we've been talking about with the widows, I find it so encouraging that it wasn't stagnation or addition that brought it to its conclusion, but that it was addressed in such a way that was not merely serviceable but continued to resolve the situation so that the multiplication of disciples could continue so that the increase of the word of God took place. Church, I don't know what our priorities are individually. I don't know what we all have on our bucket list. I don't know what you guys are going to do today when you get home, but I hope that collectively as a body, as a church, that we would care for one another in ways that are radical and extreme and different than what the world expects. I pray that we would do it in a way that is not just looking out for our own best interests or what is popular or what is expedient, but is honoring of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would understand that the word of God took on flesh and dwelt among us and lived and bled and died and rose again for our just ification not so that we could be theologically comfortable but so we could be practical representations of God here on earth would you pray with me for that Father thank you for uh, your mission and your witness thank you for the fact that you have come in the flesh in your Son Jesus Christ Father thank you for your goodness for your grace for your gospel thank you for the continual preaching of The good news that we can have reconciliation with you, not because of how good we are, but because of what you have done on our behalf. God, thank you for those that look after widows. Thank you for those that look after the marginalized in the society. Thank you for um, a church that cares and has a heart for what you have a heart for. God, I pray you would help us to continue to grow in this. I pray you would make us look more like Jesus every day. In his name, amen.